From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome everybody to episode 125 of the Killing It Killing It podcast. This is Carl and I'm joined by Ryan and Dave as always. Ryan, I have no idea where you are. Like you were going to Colorado and now you're in Hawaii. Where in the world is Ryan Morris? I know. And, and you know what? How cool is it we can actually have that conversation again? Woo! After a year and a half of not going anywhere, uh, right now. I am coming to you live from the island of Maui, Hawaii, and uh, uh, it, it is absolutely fantastic and flawless. I will, I will vouch for this place and say people should come and visit. Um, uh, we are. Uh, the other thing that I will say to you guys is um, there. I, I mentioned this to Dave earlier. There ought to be a Surgeon General's warning on all the Zillow ads out there in the real estate world that says, "Getting a new house is cool." However. You might need a surgical procedure on your back when you're done with it. So uh, think twice before you move to a new house, because putting all your crap in a box might not be worth it. Well, when you lift all the boxes into the truck and then lift all the boxes out of the truck, you just need to take a trip to Hawaii. Exactly. See, I'm thinking this is the prescription. My doctor should agree. That ought to be covered by my insurance, right? Yeah, it's, it's either that or the chiropractor, your choice. You know, I, I, and and here I am just sitting in the same spot. <laughs> it's like... Dave, I will send you pictures from Maui, Hawaii. The ocean is beautiful. I look, I look forward to some nice pictures because it's uh, well, you know, today it's a tornado day, so like that's not quite as nice here. <laughs> well, I am planning some trips. I just I had uh, lunch today with a friend who uh, is from Colombia. He actually is from from Sacramento area, but moved down to Columbia. And uh, he's like, you should totally come and visit me. And I'm like, eh, as soon as everybody in Columbia has a shot, I, you know, I, I will book some time. But until then, I'm not sure I want to uh, do that. But I, I am hoping to uh, make it up to Portland uh, on my way to uh, Providence, Rhode Island. So hey, I, have one. I do have one booked in October. I am go. I will be at the Acronis Cyber Summit. So I will for those who are in interested Florida. in Florida. So I'm actually going to go down to Florida and uh, spend a couple of days down there and do the event and fly on back to DC. <laughs> so, it's all becoming reality back. once again. Baby steps back into the real world. Nice. Well, this week we are brought to you by our friends at PCmatic. Think you know PCmatic? Think again, PCmatic is working with MSPs to deliver true zero trust, default deny, endpoint security, allowing only trusted applications and blocking all the rest. A lightweight, simple to deploy, and easy to manage approach to application allow listing. Layering a default deny approach provides MSPs of all sizes the ability to again focus on prevention, and PCmatic delivers this without impacting performance or efficiency. Find out more by visiting PCmatic.com slash MSP and be sure to ask about PCmatic's exclusive lead sharing programs for MSPs backed by a primetime national TV campaign. Alrighty, well, topic number one today, we look up to the skies and we see they are not filled with drones. Like it's been like a couple of years. We've been <laughs> we've been tooting this horn and, and I think each of us individually 
longer than that before we even started this podcast. We were telling the world that we would be, uh, you know, having drone deliveries here and there. Well, it turns out there might be a little chink in the armor. And I want to talk about this, not just this topic, but futurism in general. We're going to point to an article from Wired Magazine. And what's interesting is this is not a question of technology. Like the technology is getting better and better and more fine-tuned and the processes and procedures, whether you're going to drop this stuff from a, a crane or a parachute or land in somebody's front yard, those things are moving apace. This is about Amazon's system basically falling apart from a management perspective of having it, of hitting the wall with regard to how do you manage the human side of this? Because no matter what you do with technology, you still have human beings who need to manage the industry, create the processes, hire the right personnel. And separately, we've talked about Amazon having some <clears throat> issues with personnel in the United States. Well, apparently that's true in the UK as well. So drone deliveries going, going to be a little slower the burrito may not arrive anytime soon if if by drone is the option. Well, to be, to be fair, there are some technology challenges, and it's literally like the last little bit that's super difficult for them to do. They were trying to get it to, to land right by your front door. They can drop it. That seems to work, but getting it that last bit. So there, but, but you're right to highlight this bit. I always kind of quip and say, and I say this oftentimes for those that are want some insight into the stuff that I say to investors that talk to me about the technology space. I always say, guys like me that are doing the analysis and are telling you about the change, always assume it will happen a lot faster than it actually does. We always talk about the speed and how rapid everything is changing. But when I actually measure the true impact of things, it's always longer than I thought it was going to be to take to get to some level of conversion. Now, I'm generally like trajectory right on the direction and how, how but oftentimes think it will happen faster than it actually does or it gets to a full mainstream adoption. So there is that definitely that excitement that you get really excited about the idea and then don't project the timeline out well enough. Well, and, and you are correct, Carl, to put this back onto the real governor or the limiting factor on the adoption or the rollout of significantly disruptive innovations. It is not the innovation. It is the humans and the habits and the ways that we currently use technology and then our willingness slash ability to change the way we use technology to get things done. We've been talking about you know, this, this whole podcast, right? We talk about all this whiz-bang new stuff coming on the market, and then we have to prove the technology, and then we have to prove the business model, and then we have to get the individuals to actually do this stuff differently. That is the chapter and verse of our industry, and it has been forever and ever. There are many cutting edge technologies that are functionally and and technologically better than what is currently out there or what has mass market adoption the limitation is not the product the feature the the capability the limit is the humans and this is where you get back to what i think is particularly relevant to our audience if it's a question of shifting a functional process, doing your job a little bit differently. There's habit, there's skill, there's 
there's comfort zone and retraining and certification, those things are an issue. When it affects the cash flow of a business or an industry and you have to change your business model, even smart people get freaked out. Even very successful businesses cling to the way that things have always been done around here. And I frankly think that's exactly what's going on with the drums. I mean, you guys watched, right? Uh, I, I assume you watched at least a little bit of the Olympics as they were recently on. I'm not sure if you caught the closing ceremony. Um, many fireworks, but even more synchronized drones flying in the sky. Right. And I actually saw something where somebody was like, I think the drones were more impressive, much more interesting than the fireworks. And somebody else said, yeah, but aren't they more expensive? And the answer was, hell no. Fireworks are really <laughs> expensive. Drones have advanced to a point of capability and affordability where they can do phenomenal things if the humans are willing to actually change right. the way they run their business. So, so I want to take a step back and look at this kind of in a bigger perspective. If I mean, all of us are kind of uh, amateur futurists, right? We look at Kevin Kelly and Daniel Burris and so forth. And, and we look at the future and we get really excited about all this new technology. And then we say, and then there's, you know, all the other stuff, driverless cars and so forth and so on. And, you know, we talk about the exponential century and how everything is moving so fast. To Dave's point, are we just looking two, three, five years ahead of everybody else that we're, we're looking farther up the curve? Because uh, one of the other things you have to think about is technology will progress at the pace it will progress with, and we're going to come back to this later in the show, uh, the occasional burp where we say, oh, and then here's two years of pandemic. Right? <laughs> so, so the human side of it gets delayed, but the technology is continuing to progress at the rate that it wants to progress at. Um, I remember back, you know, the, the big recession, market crashes in the fall of 2008. So we have recession in 2009, 2010. When we emerge from that, the cloud had gone from being, you know, something that's just a handful of people were pushing to being established and secure and the default technology. Um, the, the technology did not stop just because there was a recession going on and nobody was selling anything, right? Uh, and I think we're in a similar situation. The technology is, is going to keep moving apace until the human beings catch up with it. And the, the recession is only a minor piece of Amazon's problems. <laughs> well, they, they, can, they can sometimes have other problems too. <laughs> this is a story that goes back generations of technology, right? I always point back to the example of when Sony shifted from vacuum tube radios into solid state transistor radios. The, you know, there was a question of quality and sound and sonic trueness. And, and there, there were all kinds of questions about whether the product was good enough. But then there were years where a more than good enough technology just simply was not adopted because the retailers and the service companies that sold radios in the world, they made some of their money selling radios and then they made massive amounts of very high margin money on providing the services, not only to sell you new vacuum tubes when those things would go wrong, but to install them because they were very delicate and they required skills. You bring out a new technology if you do not anticipate and enable the change in your in your downstream 
go-to-market chain in your channel, if you don't enable them to change their business along with the technology, they absolutely won't. And that's where you're at, Carl. The cloud was there. It was brilliant. But we had to change compensation plans for sales guys. And then we had to change the cash flow projections for businesses. The cloud was capable years earlier than it was adopted because the people like to get paid. Ooh, so I, I could take us down a road of managed services providers not pushing their customers forward, but <laughs> we are out of time. And so I will just let that hang for a moment as we talk well, you about- You don't get our, to say that. <laughs> no, I'm going to move right along because instead I'm actually going to take something that does build on this next bit. Our next story is covering, is a Vice article talking about how several dozen Google's employees were fired over data misuse. Uh, they actually fired a number, uh, dozens of employees between 2018 and 2020 for abusing their access to the company's tools and data, uh, and they were accessing user and employee data, according to some documents that were found. What I wanted to focus on here was the, okay, like I'm, I'm kind of totally on board with that, there being some element of you lose your job for doing that. Where are the where are the more penalties for that? How much of this is a level of I mean, this is all private, right? This is all private stuff going on. But is there some expectation of privacy that a company needs to do? Is there criminal intent? When does it become something that is more beyond that? How are, how are you guys thinking about the penalties for data misuse? What's the framework we should be wrapping I, this in? I think the timing is kind of freaky because we recently just had a story about the Supreme Court deciding that police officers who, you know, misuse something that they have a legitimate access to, but use it for purposes other than what they're authorized for, that's where they are breaking the law. This is literally like, I mean, these people are looking at, you know, Facebook data and MySpace data and other stuff and using it to stalk people and check up on their friends. And the parallel is amazing. And I think that, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to see them doing this. I'm glad to see them looking internally. Uh, but I also think that the next step is for them to say, you know, when you cross these lines, we call the police, we call the FBI, because this is, you know, when you're talking about any data that moves across state lines, now we're talking federal law. We're talking about federal offenses. And so uh, I think this could get very big, very fast. But companies are smart to govern themselves so that they got the <laughs> Congress doesn't govern for them. Well, and, and this problem, to your point, Carl, is not exactly new. Access to private and sensitive and valuable information it has always been a closely guarded mechanism, right? Our, our society believes that your personal information ought to be yours and that people who have access to it for official purposes ought to use it only for that. When I was a teenager, I had a friend and her father was a police officer and he was notorious for uh, intimidating any boys who wanted to date his daughter, right? Um, but we learned out years, we learned years later that he, he didn't just sit them down and have a conversation, but he would actually do a background search on them and he would find out any information that he could through the official channels. Now, this was years ago, obviously, and he got in a lot of trouble for misusing that information. I agree with you, Carl. I think the parallel is extremely accurate and that in a world of very valuable data, 
if you use it for the stated purpose, I'm cool with that, right? You disclose what you're using it for. You tell me what you're using it as a tool in your business model. Great. Do that stuff. Sneak around the edges and that becomes a massive question because this comes back to a theme that I think I have fundamentally settled on. The data that you have as a business, you think that is your data and you are wrong. It is not your data. It is a digital copy of your customer's data. Their social security number, their credit card numbers, their purchase history. You just happen to be a steward of that information for a while while you're using it in your business. If you use it correctly, cool. If you misuse it, I think there ought to be stringent legal penalties. And yes, Facebook, I'm talking to you. Ooh, he threw down the gauntlet. Because what's interesting is, is if I think about the... So I love thinking about the legal frameworks because for me, it's very important that we approach this problem by thinking that way because I don't want public, private companies just making up all the rules however they want. But I would be remiss if I didn't point out that the way it works right now is a private company determines what those rules of engagement are. Ryan, your statement, while philosophically making a lot of sense is not the way the actual law is written, right? The moment that you have signed the, the end user license agreement that says, I can do whatever they want, right? That's generally what those things say that any of that data that you provide to them, they can do what they want. And that old adage of, if you're not paying for the service, you are the product is often is very true for companies like a Facebook or like a Google who are monetizing that data. Uh, I think that there's a, you know, I want to separate it because I look and say like there's moral implications of the way I want them to behave versus the legal ramifications of how they are allowed to behave. And I, I want, you know, I do fall in this area where I want to be very careful that the regulation guidance is very clear. I, you know, I, I know many people have listened says I tend to be pro regulation on things because I like the rules defined. Right. I like the rules of engagement defined, not that I'm saying I want unfettered access to government controlling everything. And that's where I want this better defined is, is I want those rules of engagement so that we can we can play within them. And I think that all of this begins at home. I mean, when I think about managed services, so I signed non-disclosure agreements with my clients and then I signed non-disclosure agreements with my employees. And I literally kept a file and would, could at any time send any client who asked for it a copy of all the non-disclosure agreements for my employees because they needed to know, you know, here, ABC company, their data is their data. And I don't want anybody who works for me poking around inside their data. Yes, you, you need to restore from backup. You need to test the backup. You need to mount that BDR image, whatever. That does not give you the right to go poking around and seeing who their clients are and what their financial records look like or or somebody's personnel uh, file or whatever. Um, and I think 99.9% of the time, I'm guessing, people in our business have never cared about that stuff and we don't snoop. But every once in a while, you see it in the news, somebody does. And I think we need to be really clear about the transparency on this that we need to treat that data respectfully and we need to expect the people we do business with to treat it respectfully. I will not let people send me personal stuff on Facebook, LinkedIn, or any of these social media. I literally like, 
that's what email is for. That's what private communication is for, right? Because uh, it exists there somewhere and the employees, whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn or whoever, those employees, somebody somewhere can see that. Now, whether or not they ever go looking, I don't know, but let's not give them anything to talk about. Well, well and you layer encryption on too, by the way, because this is also why, like, if you want it private, You've got to make sure that you are ta putting in place the protections to ensure it actually is private. And, and yes, that's more difficult. Yes, that is time consuming, resource intensive, er and therefore expensive. And to your point, Carl, as another ongoing theme, that's what we call growing up in an industry. It's maturing. It is a question of the professionalism of our industry. At a point in time where an MSP was just responsible for making sure your network stayed up so that you could do stuff on your network, uh, maybe it was mission critical, maybe it wasn't. We could have a debate about that, but not anymore. Now, these networks are intrinsic to the business model. The data that flows over them is, as we keep saying, the new oil. It is the lifeblood of an organization. If you are flippant, about the way you manage that stuff for your clients, you cannot be taken seriously as an MSP anymore. It's just the way that our industry has grown up and matured. Again, careful what you wish, wish for, guys. You've been claiming to be mission critical to your customers for years and years, and now you are, and now you have to behave like <laughs> And in an era where people are talking about privacy and there are so many regulations on privacy that you can't even keep track of them, uh, I would make this a differentiating factor in your business mm -hmm. to be able to say, you know, we absolutely will not be looking through your stuff. Like your data is your data and we're going to, even though we touch it, we're not going to be looking through it. Make know? it a feature. There are people that will pay for it. People will pay for this feature. Well, and, and in that vein, guys, uh, it's interesting, the, the thread that we're following here today, we're going to dig into our third topic now with a further focus on technology and its impact on privacy. Uh, the article that we're going to introduce here for this story is actually about new format of technology that Apple is introducing to help in the battle against child sexual uh, abuse material, it, unfortunate in our world that that is actually an acronym. Um, but the idea is, as an industry, there needs to be not just people looking at images on networks and social media and whatever to determine whether or not there are bad things going on in those photos. There's so much of it, unfortunately, it needs to be automated. And many of the services, whether it's Box, Dropbox, or any of these uh, online file sync and share services, they have services that look into this stuff. Apple is now coming to a new way of doing it, a more advanced way of getting around some of the, the shenanigans that people do with questionable images to try and get around the, the identification protocols. So Apple has a new technology. The question that's come up here is, wait a minute, Apple is the privacy company, and they're the ones, rightfully so, who have a good reputation for not looking at your stuff, contrary to some of the other companies that we've been talking about. And now they're going to install this technology to examine your photos on your device. A, are we okay with that? And B, what do you think the implications are for automated systems looking into your quote unquote private information? 
Well, I have to say, uh, I first of all, I welcome this discussion because I love complicated views of the world. Anything that fits on a bumper sticker is probably reasonably mindless. <laughs> so I'm okay with this being a complicated thing where I just said one thing and now I want to say another, right? That I, I no one's going to argue that uh, this isn't a good thing to try to stop the the child sex abuse. You know, I belong to organizations that that fight the same thing. Um, but the question is, once Apple says, "Here's a chink in the armor," like your privacy is your privacy, except this one thing. How do we know there won't suddenly be another thing that is a different exception? Well, so um, I've, I've, so it's interesting because this, you know, this is the classic slippery slope argument, right? Right. Um, and and I've co I'm coming to the to the thinking of the like it's just kind of a bullshit argument. Like I'll just sort of say it that that it is a cop out of actually taking the time to think through where lines are drawn and how they are drawn. Well, if you draw this one line, it could be any other line. No, that's not actually how lines work. If I draw a line, <laughs> it is a line that I have drawn for a set of reasons. It's not that I could draw a bunch of other lines. It's I drew this one. And here's the reasons why. So the slippery slope argument is an intellectual game that people play when they are copping out of doing the hard work. So we as a society have come to the conclusion that children are to be protected because of who of, because of who they are. We as a society have determined that. The reason this technology is interesting to me is that the way that there is a group who has stood up and said we are looking at these hor this horrible space and have taken the time to create, you know, cryptographic hashes of the problematic images so that we can check for a very particular identified group because we want to make sure this stuff is not out there, this specific stuff. And so what Apple's saying is there's this group that has been become a trusted member of society who has declared this is their one purpose and we're going to leverage them. And so they've said that's what we're going to do. And by the way, to be very specific, they are not scan. They what they are doing is they're scanning any photos that you are taking from your device and putting into your iCloud backup. They are yes, they're doing that on the device. But they, if you turn off backups, they aren't scanning those photos because they're just doing it to use their service. I think it's a very clear set of things that says this is what we're doing. We're doing this. And we are being transparent about that. And for me, that's we have drawn a line. We have defined it. We have communicated it out. You, the individual user, can make your choice about if that is acceptable or not. Don't give me a bunch of arguments of, well, they might do this other stuff. Yeah, welcome to life. Other things might happen. Those are well, other lines. And, and so for me, it's that. <laughs> and it may be that the line is drawn around child abuse or, uh, you know, I mean, we have free speech, which has some very clearly drawn lines around speech that's not free. And, and we've picked out a, just a handful of things and we've put very high walls around, yeah, you get free speech until you do this, right? Or until you, you know, uh, cross this line. So maybe that's it. I will say kind of a side note, when I was in Cambodia and, and working with the group that rescues uh, girls from the slave trade, um, they work, the government and the organization there, uh, the NGO, 
they work with the major social media outfits to track globally the men that they know travel internationally to uh, find these girls and engage in the slave trade. And, and that's not something Facebook, Google, or LinkedIn are required to do by any stretch of the imagination, nor is it something that they publicly make a big deal of. But they do participate in those things in clear violation of kind of the generic privacy policies that they've agreed to. But they basically said, look, the bar is, is set high enough here. If you're engaging in these behaviors, tough. <laughs> we're, we're going to share this information with the government. That's the thing, Carl. I think your, your, your opening premise is the right one for this situation and for many others. It is radically oversimplified to say that things are either ones or zeros in the world. To say black or white, it is, you're either 100% privacy or zero privacy. They can have access to any of your information or it's absolute ironclad total privacy. That's totally wrong, that we live in a complicated world. We live in a world with many shades of gray that are legitimately distinguished from your privacy. I think this is one that allows us to have, it, it's an unfortunate topic. It is a brutal thing that, this in, that our industry needs to address this issue, but it forces us to look at privacy and in much more than just those elementary ways of, all private, no private, all private, no private. No, no. This is a very hard edge case that forces you to think about, well, what are the boundaries? And then you can apply those lessons to other less painful topics, and you get a very good guide point of this fits within the privacy definition or it does not fit within the privacy definition. This is miserable that we need to have this problem. The output of this, again, I salute the Apple guys for their for their approach to privacy across the board. They do it better than others because their business model is built on selling devices, not built on manipulating people's data. Right. It's a fundamental change in their business model and therefore they can afford to get away with it. I give them a lot of credit for doing that, but even more so that they're willing to step up and go, yes, but. That's not absolute if you do things that are over the line. It's, it's a much more mature form of a conversation, and, and they deserve some credit for going this direction. Yep. I mean, and as I said, this, this, uh, this is hard. Uh, and for me, it does come down to that's what transparency is about. The, 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 the more that you can be very clear with what someone's expectation should be, how things are done. Apple's gone to great lengths to give some insights into how the technology works, where they're sourcing the data, and if they commit to that level of transparency, that's how you can do it. I, I said was asked recently how to build trust with you know, in in like the vendor or any community, and I made the statement of you can't expect perfection, but you can expect information. And that the trick to all of this is, is that you like nothing, there is no perfect answer, but what you can do is, is as long as you have the information to make informed decisions, then you can proceed. And I'm, for me, I'm comfortable with this because I don't buy into slippery slope arguments and I have enough information to make an informed decision. And uh, just a side note, I would applaud Apple for making a decision that, yeah, it might cost them a couple of clients, but it also might actually 
change the behavior of people who are using their products. And, you know, if it's changed in the right direction, that's all good. Yep, agreed. And with that happy note, we have come to the end of yet another podcast. So thank you for tuning in and join us next time. This has been episode 125 of the Killing It podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.